Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for being uh, patient. We started slightly late. Uh, we're here to, uh, to launch, stroke, celebrate uh, Mirza Wahid's second novel, The Book of Gold Leaves. Um, I'm sure many of you have, have in the audience have already read it. If you haven't, there are plenty to purchase outside afterwards. Um, this is a love story set in uh, war-torn Kashmir. Um, Fez, a papier-mâché artist who's uh, absorbed in creating pencil cases, vases, primarily for export um, abroad, uh, dreams of painting his own masterpiece um, on a daily basis. He falls in love with a, a well-educated young woman called Ruhi. Um, she is a Sunni. He is a Shia. They conduct this clandestine love affair against a very rapid collapse of their world, um, a world that is extremely political, but during the course of the novel, we realize how personal it becomes. It's the 1990s, and the Indian army has moved in, essentially, to Kashmir. And there are many young men who are against this, and they cross over into the border, into Pakistan, and backed by Pakistan, militants are trained to come back and fight the Indian army. Um, Wahid, let's start by talking about Kashmir, because although I said at the beginning that this is a love story set against war-torn Kashmir in the 1990s, it seems to me that it's, it's actually a love story, your love affair with Kashmir too. So I, I, kind of, I want to ask you really, first of all, about your relationship with that place, a place where you were born and where you grew up. So, so tell us a little bit about why you have wanted to write, this is your second novel about Kashmir, why you've continued to want to write about it. Um, thank you all for coming. Um, I've been asked this question a number of times. It's a, okay, it's this a, it's is a, being it's podcasted, a, a, so I'm going to move this so that you're writing... I've been asked this question a number of times, why Kashmir and why do you set your novels in Kashmir? And I came up with a flippant answer uh, because I had to say something to the newspaper people that if uh, Orhan Pamo can do all his work which set in uh, Turkey... Uh, can I do two novels in Kashmir, please? I don't mean <laughs> why Kashmir. Talk to me about your, yeah. your, your relationship to no, the I was, place. Yeah, the, the serious answer is uh, this is, uh, this is a long love letter to, to the city I grew up in, in Srinagar. Um, a bit too long, perhaps, uh, <laughs> as far as love letters go. Um, I, uh, the city, it's, this is, it's a wonderful city. It's a magical city. It's, it's, uh, I grew up in its lanes and by-lanes and gardens and orchards and, and all those beautiful places which, you know, uh, are, ca are called by various cliched names, idyls and, and, and pastoral idyls and paradise and so on and so forth. Um, and I was lucky to be at all those places. I, uh, of course, my family, my parents, my grandfather wouldn't allow us children to get, go out of the house, uh, which was reason, reason enough for me to say I must go out <laughs> and, and see what it is like. And I, that's what I did. As a child, I would, I would be out very often by the lake. We, I, when I grew up in Kashmir, in Srinagar, we lived near the lake, near the famous Dal Lake. I learned to swim in the lake uh, and fish uh, and so on and, and all those things. Um, and then I also grew up in the in the old city, what is called, you know, the the in Urdu is called Shahr Khas, and I like that phrase because Khas means special, uh, literal meaning. And the old town is has been there for for centuries by the river, and it's very different from the rest of 
the, the place, from the rest of Kashmir, from the rest of Srinagar. It's a completely different um, urban sort of, uh, to use a bad word, ecosystem, as opposed to the rest of, you know, you, you have these images of Kashmir, Shikara, the lake, the flowers, the handicrafts, and so on and so forth. But the old town is, is amazing. It's, it's got these houses, which have stood there for, you know, hundreds of years, um, and it's got these markets, which have been there since, uh, which have been there for centuries, uh, from the time when there was trade between these places and, 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 and other centers in Entrance of several people have completely made you lose your train of thought. <laughs> let, let's let, let's talk about um, let's talk about the characters in in the in the novel. Well, the city is wonderful. It's amazing. I uh, sort of lived in the old town as well because my mother's uh, family uh, came from the old town, and uh, there are these houses which are uh, one of the houses I remember had a, a staircase which was massive, which there was these huge shafts of would. And as I grew up, I one day asked my maternal uncle, why are these stairs so big? Why are these steps so massive? Why They don't look human. And he said, actually, they aren't. They weren't meant for humans. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, they were meant for horses wow. to climb all the way up to the top floor. And, so, and this is the house I spent time in. And all those things obviously go into your, you can trace the, the arc of your imagination if you're a novelist or, 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 or pretend to be a novelist, um, to that time when you think of those things, you know, these houses uh, and stories. So my uh, relatives from my maternal home, they would tell me stories of, of what the city used to be like. So, so one of your main characters, uh, Fez, who is named after the great Urdu poet Fez Ahmed Fez, um, is a papier-mâché artist, and, and your great-grandfather was a papier-mâché artist. I wondered how aware you were of that artistry when, when you were, were growing up, in, in, and also how much that informed your creation of that character. When I was about eight or nine, I went up to the top floor of our uh, house uh, by the lake. I mean, it's not by the lake, it's about ten minutes, I tend to think it's by the lake. <laughs> <laughs> it's a 10-minute walk. Um, I went up to the top floor and I saw this screen painted, half-painted, and it was a scene from Umar Khayyam. There's the Persian poet Umar Khayyam doing something by, you know, flowers and trees and, and gardens. and, and uh, But it was there, you know, it was sort of gathering dust. And later on, I found out that it was my uncle who had trained as an artist but didn't do it because he was also, uh, he was an officer in, 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 the, in the Ministry of Textiles. He was a decorated officer, so he, he wouldn't do this. But he had done this because he had picked this thing from his father, uh, who had picked up, picked this art from his father, my great-grandfather. So, but I saw my grandfather do these things, make these things all my life. Uh, and, and it was... It would, it would be, it would be one of those moments when you would wonder, well, how can this man do this? He would just sort of paint a flower vase in half an hour with, with hundreds of little patterns on it, or, and it would fill you with, with some excitement, also mystery, that how can this man do this? But as I grew up, I, I knew this is not—he's not really an artist. He has to do this to make a living, you know. But he was a renowned artist. He he painted for. Um, there's a mention of suffering Moses in Midnight Children, 
suffering Moses is the oldest uh, handicrafts house in Kashmir and the finest. My grandfather used to paint exclusively for them. So I would see him do these things, and, but I wasn't good at it. I couldn't do it. My uncle and my father had learned this from their father. I would see them. So my role when I was about 10, 12 was to um, put little coals in a fire pot and to make sure it worked properly. Um, when I was about 15 or 16, there was a long, uh, you know, curfew in Srinagar. And it was a particularly long curfew. It lasted about two months. So we were homebound. Uh, you know, we didn't have to do anything. And money was running out and food was running out. So I remember going into the lake on a rickety boat, you know, looking for food with, the, with a bunch of other boys. Uh, it was a little adventure, and we, we, we scored some food in the lake, literally. We went to these vegetable gardens by the lake and sort of, you know, got food into the house. Um, around the same time, my uncle, who was very, very good at this, decided that there was nothing to do. There was no offices to go to. You know, for, this, this curfew lasted 70 days. So he decided he, got, he sort of uh, uh, found his old toolkit and started to paint after I don't know how many years. And I watched him, and he was very good. And he said, you want to do this? You, know, you want to try your hand? I said, yes, I could. Uh, what can I do? So he said, there are these Easter eggs. You, know, you want to paint them? I said, I don't know what to do with them. He said, I'll tell you. So he told me what to do, and I did something. I painted some, some horrible uh, <laughs> daub paint on these Easter <laughs> eggs. Which, but it actually fetched some money. I remember it was it was a thousand rupees. Now I've said this before that not I don't. Not per egg. Sorry. Not per egg. No, no, for for, for this hundred. <laughs> right. Eggs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the the exporters, the middleman, proverbially, they will exploit every kind of artist, whether it's a paper mache artist or or or, uh, or a proper artist. Um, so I don't know if the money came from this uh, exporter or it was given to him by my uncle so that I wasn't discouraged. You know, I don't know. To this day, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, I really don't. I did ask him. He, didn't, he wouldn't tell me. So that was my experience of doing this. This one time I did these Easter eggs. I don't know if they were thrown into some bin or they actually sort of, you know, found someplace somewhere. Okay, well, since we're talking about the papier-mâché um, artistry, can, can you just tell us the story of the cover of this book, which is a postscript in the novel, but it's such a beautiful cover, and I'd quite like you to tell people the story. Um, it's a long story. Make it short okay. so we can talk about the content of the book. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I finished writing the book and uh, a third draft or, or an edit uh, uh, in autumn uh, in, in last year. And I went home to Srinagar to be with my parents. And on the last day, uh, the day before I was to pack and come back to London, we were talking, uh, my uncle and my father, after dinner. And um, I asked him about... Uh, we often talk about uh, my grandfather, who was, a, who was a crazy man, but, you know, he was a brilliant man, but, you know, he, never, he was a tyrant as well. He never listened to anyone, but was a, was a funny man, was, was full of jokes. I always talk about him. Then I suddenly asked my uncle and my, and my father that if they remembered anything of their grandfather. And they said, yeah, yeah, well, he was also an artist. He was lazy, but he used to like to dress up and so on and so on. The, the usual sort of family uh, goss. 
about uh, this man. And I found out he was a bit of a ladies' man, the, my great-grandfather, and he would do something once a year or something. And my uncle actually very casually mentioned that he may have something by his grandfather, by my grandfather, my great-grandfather. I said, what is it? He said, I don't know, it's somewhere in the house. And I said, look for it. So he went, and next day he actually came to the house with a brown package in his hands. And he said, I went up to the attic and there was this trunk. So all South Asian households have a trunk in the attic, <laughs> which is uh, usually a, a, a trunk that uh, brought in dowry, you know, to, or, 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 you know, copper pans. So this trunk was there in his attic, and in this trunk was this most gorgeous, gorgeous painting that, that he gave it to me. It was, it was a cover. It was literally, it was, I said, what is it? He said, he said it's called a jilt. Jilt is the Urdu-Persian word for cover. And, uh, and I, we, I couldn't make sense of this. That oh, He just mentioned this casually. Here is this beautiful, gorgeous thing, and there was this artwork on the you know, outer covers. And my sister was there, and we were speechless. And then we opened, I opened it, and inside the, this jilt was this single panel painted uh, which is which was this? Uh, not, I mean, this is a part of that panel, and it was just. Uh, I was a bit upset. I, this family heirloom had existed for God knows how long, and nobody told us, you know. And but they were like, okay. Um, I took photographs. I had a smartphone. You know, you want to play with them, high res photos, and so on and so forth, and send them to uh, my editor in London. And she, I remember her email. She said, "Wahid, we were thinking of commissioning a Kashmiri artist for your cover, but this is even better. Is there any way you can bring it with you?" I think that that was the text of the email. My editor is here. She will correct me later. <laughs> and, and I. I uh, showed the email to my uncle, um, and I didn't know. Uh, he, he was very generous. He said, this is yours too. Yeah. So I, yeah, that's the story. I brought it uh, to London and uh, gave it to my publishers, and then they did things with it, and they, that became the cover. Let's talk about what's been... Between the covers now. Enough so about the cover. Enough about the cover. cover yeah. Enough about your relationship with Kashmir. Um, let's talk about the, the story. Um, the, the two main characters, let's talk about Faz, the, the, the papier-mâché artist. He, he lives in a kind of dimly lit, very, very large house. Clearly, this is a family that did have money once. And this family is entirely dependent on his income as a papier-mâché artist to, to live. And his father is dead. He lives there with his mother and his older brother, and sisters. He, he doesn't strike one immediately as a character who is going to go on to do what he does, which is to go across the border to Pakistan and train to become a militant. Did you have in your mind the whole, pretty much the story in your head? Did you know what you were going to write about in this book? No, I, 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 I don't plot... Uh, Novels. I mean, I've written. I've only written two. I don't know. Maybe I will become one of those, you know, uh, amazing novelists who know everything, uh, you know, to the last detail. I know the loose story, of course. I I know that are these people. I write with character. I think I have figured so far, uh, you know, with with people uh, and and try to spend time with them. You know what they will think and what how they will talk and so on and so forth. Um, 
I didn't write write Faz first. I I was uh, I used to think a lot about Ruhi. Um, uh, when I met my wife uh, the first time in London, and when we did, we decided to sort of be together and get married, I would tell her the story of Ruhi uh, at night, and she liked most parts. Some parts would put her to sleep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. It's a true story. And um, so I was with Ruhi for a long time. You know, because uh, I, I suppose I was slightly insecure as to how to write women. I, I, I didn't know if it was, you know, uh, but I, I, I carried on. Fares, of course, was there. You know, the, the, there's the paper mashy thing. I knew, you know, how it is done and what uh, kind of a person uh, this artist is uh, would be uh, to do this, um, and I knew the the city, and the house. And his specific situation as as this artist who does this for a living, he paints hundreds of these things every week to make enough money. But he has uh, aspirations. Uh, he is deluded, like writers are, and <laughs> to think that he will one day paint his masterpiece. You know, he's not content to make uh, in, in in with this little craft. He's very good, but he knows, and he knows he's good. Uh, so he wants to make this big painting called Falaknuma, which means like the sky. And he has a scheme for this. Uh, he will paint the world, his world, his specific uh, locality and the world around it uh, as reflected in a big canvas, which is like the sky. Um, and that's what he is about to do uh, towards the beginning of the novel, towards the beginning of the story. He's, he's making sketches, he's making notes, he's, making, he's adding small details uh, to this masterpiece in his mind. Um, and everything changes when... Yes, yeah, so he, he doesn't... He's not a political person, so to speak. Yeah. He's not someone who's uh, read political texts or he's not an activist. He doesn't... He's not a protester. He's not... Um, he's not a politically motivated person, you know. He's aware of what goes around him, but he's essentially an artist. And he's very, very committed to this idea that one day I will make this masterpiece and I will leave this little craft. He, he's, he's proud of his craft, but he wants to become a bigger artist. That's what he's trying to do at the beginning of the novel. And then, uh, then comes this moment of uh, rupture, uh, where his little world is kind of blown apart because he sees his, uh, his godmother... Um, uh, his godmother's body in his ha in his uh, in his lap. He doesn't see the act of her dying, the act of killing. Uh, he just sees her, uh, and it, he can't process it. Uh, he can't make sense of it. Um, he, he he cannot therefore come to terms with it. He cannot accept it. Um, and then eventually he decides there's only one thing for, left for him to do, which is to to fight, to pick up. Then he abandons the brush for the gun, you know. Um, I tried to arrive at that moment gradually and slowly, and so that it's not. But uh, but but also you, you you do arrive at it gradually. But there, but there's also a, a a sense of of resonance with what we what we're seeing today in in many instances. If you look at, for example, at, at the conflict in in Sri Lanka, you know that every person who chooses to turn to or pick up arms and fight in a different way 
It's always because of something personal, nearly always because of something personal that's happened. And, and, and with him, it's, it's, he does remember there's an accident. It's, it, the, the, the death of his, god, his godmother is, is an accident. Um, and it happens along at the same time as a, as a bus full of children uh, are, are killed. That, that moment is is an epiphany for him, but he, does, he doesn't immediately take up arms. He has, this, he has this period of time where he turns to drugs and, and he doesn't quite know how to, how to live anymore. It's almost as though he's suffocating in this place where he's felt mm, mm, alive. Yeah, he takes drugs, not meth. Or, or, he, he takes uh, cough syrup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should make that clear. And, uh, no, he, that's what he does. He takes this cough syrup every day, probably twice a day sometimes, to, to sleep because he can't sleep anymore, um, which is his way of dealing with uh, his personal, as you said, uh, anguish and, and crisis. Uh, but he's loosely aware of the surrounding theater of war, you know. His reasons are personal, which eventually become political. Um, but yeah, he, it's a big education for him. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he goes through this process. He understands the meaning of soldiers by uh, the window to his mother's kitchen. You know, he, he doesn't like it. He, 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 can't, he won't write an op-ed about it. Uh, he won't uh, go and uh, make a poster out of this. He just internalizes all this and thinks this is wrong. And, and then he connects his personal tragedy, his personal moment of rupture to the larger theater of war. He still can't make complete sense of the theater of war because he's, as I said, he's, he's, he's at heart, he has a fine sensibility. He wants to paint, you know. And then he meets his girl and he, you know, he, he falls in love with her. He, he likes her and he wants to be with her. That's what he wants to do in life. He wants to be with her and make his... Masterpiece. Let, 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 we'll talk about the love story in a minute. I just, I just want to explore this, this idea of, of his political education because it, it develops after his older brother is... It's hard to know what happens to him, really. He's, he's part of what's described as a, as a sweeping-up operation. There's a, there's, a, there's a machine which is talked about as the, the, a monster, the Zal, which, which, is, which is what sweeps up young men, and he is terribly injured. So just explain, explain that moment in, in history, politically, in Kashmir. What was it that was happening that resulted in, in that incident for, in fiction? In fiction, I, I loved inventing this vehicle, you know. I, it was one of those moments um, where someone like me could actually say it came to me, you know, <laughs> one of those things, those pretentious things, you know, that poets say. Uh, but it did. I, I liked inventing this vehicle called the Zal. And, but uh, in, in the real world, in, in, in Kashmir's contemporary history, uh, you had these vehicles, uh, not the kind of vehicle that is in the novel, you had regular vehicles, which are called APCs, armored personal carriers, or, or uh, similar trucks. And that, when I was a teenager, I used to see these vehicles. They would run down a street, nab little boys, you know, teenagers, and some of them would come back 
hurt, tortured, beaten up. Some of them would never come back. I, many years later, I was in Delhi. This is my first or second year in Delhi. And I am waiting for a bus by this lovely sport uh, called Pragati Maidan, which is an exhibition center for exhibitions in Delhi, you know, where you have trade fairs and so on and so forth, even book fairs. There's a book fair that happens in Pragati Maidan. I was waiting for a, bu- for a bus to go home. And um, by uh, a few hundred feet away, there was a curve that went into uh, another road, outer ring road or some place like that. And I saw a Delhi traffic police vehicle turn. You know. But it resembled the, the four-wheel drive vehicles that we would see back home. They would rush down a street and now nah, literally grab people. Off. But it was grabbed by people, not by contraptions, as in the novel. And I started running. That was my instinct. And because I had just moved to Delhi. I was, you know, this person from Kashmir. And Delhi is a massive city, and I was happy to be there. You know, I studied literature. But this, I remember this clearly. So I saw this vehicle, and my first instinct was to run, because that's what we used to do. We, it, that was our training. If you saw a military vehicle or a police vehicle uh, or any such vehicle, you ran. And I actually was about to, you know, so, that, so those, those things stay on your mind. And, and if you grow up to be a writer and you think you're a writer, um, so memory does strange things. They will, it will just uh, spring surprises and, and walk into a scene you're writing which is completely fictional um, or, or an invented uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, story. Uh, and those things, and I have gradually uh, begun to understand that it's fine, you know, these, these, all these things belong together, uh, fact, fiction, memory, and, and imagination, and, and of course I like making things up, that's what we do, you know, um, but then, you know, these things, those images, sounds, texture, colors, they will, uh, they will, they, they come up. They it, it's up. a fantastic image because it informs, it becomes the, it, it, it informs the fear on the street that, that everyone feels. Yeah. I didn't want to do all those vehicles, you know, which have, which happened in real, in the real world, in real life, because there's too many of them and there's, they're boring and, and they're tedious, you know, it's the same military vehicle will come and, you know, there will be people with guns on it and uh, so, um, it wasn't novelistic enough for me to do those realistic vehicles. So I came up with this one vehicle, which, which, uh, which is called the Zal. Let's talk about Ruhi, because this love affair, she, it feels to me as though she... It's interesting to hear you talk about her being in your head for a lot longer, and she was the first character in your head when you were thinking about the, the story. Because it, although the things that happen two fairs and the things that he does and the action is propelled by the decisions that he makes. It seems to me that she's the heart of of the book in lots of ways. She's well-educated. She's beautiful, of course. Um, She's also instinctively um, somebody who is not not quite rebellious, but but is is somebody who has her own mind. And, And that was was really exciting for me to read because I, I felt like she was she was somebody who pretty much anyone could relate to. She was clearly somebody who was rooted in her tradition. She loves her family, but was prepared to make a stand, and, and clearly she does. What, what I want to ask you about is, is, the, is the clandestine love affair that they, they have, because it starts with them meeting at a shrine, a Sufi shrine. So he is a Shia, 
and she is a Sunni. They both know <coughs> that this relationship is potentially doomed because it's not allowed. It's not something that their family or either family is going to accept. And I love that you have them meet at a Sufi shrine. It seems to me that you're saying something about Islam. Are you? No, I wasn't, actually. Now that you mentioned, <laughs> I could use that, that I was making <laughs> comment on. <laughs> no, I'm glad you liked Ruhi, because I, I also think that she's the, the heart of the novel in many ways. She's, yes, she's, she's, she's perfect and all those boring things, but she's also very headstrong and she's, she's stubborn. Mm-hmm. And in her mind, there is no doubt that uh, this is not going to happen. She wants it, and she she says to herself, "I'm going to do this," you know, because she's been waiting for this moment all her life. Um, she she's not one of those people who's conflicted in a big way. She's there's a brief moment in the novel where she's um, doubtful for a, for a few minutes or half an hour or an hour. You know, because she does contemplate that, oh, he's Shia and I'm Sunni. And there's Romeo and Juliet written all over this and so on and so forth. Uh, but she then decides, no, that's rubbish. You know, I want this. And then she just sets out to, to do it. Um, she, is, she is rooted, you're right, she's rooted. She's grown up by this wonderful, magnificent shrine uh, in, in, in Srinagar which uh, is located by this river. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a magnificent place. I just went uh, and saw it. I saw a version of I mean, I modeled the shrine on various shrines and a part of something and invented little bits here and there. But there is this big shrine called Shahamdan, the shrine in Srinagar by the river. And I used to play in the courtyard of the shrine as a child. You know, and I remember the, the, the stone platforms of the shrine. And uh, I have Fez sits on one of these stone platforms. Of course, I've put in a chinar tree and, you know, other things in there. Ruhi is grown up looking at this shrine every single day of her life. She wakes up and she looks at this place. Her relationship with this shrine is not just, is not merely the relationship of a devotee, uh, uh, to a place of worship. It, this is, uh, she tells herself this place belongs to her. It's hers. She will not listen to the elders or, or, or the neighbors or men primarily who, you know, who determine what women uh, or young people should do and shouldn't do with regard to places of worship especially. She doesn't really give a damn. She, she knows what they say, she, but she's one of those people, she's not going to go into the streets and march against it. She's not going to be, she's not going to wave a flag. You know, she's, she's, she knows that that's silly. I have to be cleverer than this. You know, she can't just pick a fight. And, uh, uh, and the reason for her uh, uh, confidence is that her claim on this place, on her little world, is complete. She doesn't, it's not negotiated, it's not mediated. She hasn't read about these things in newspapers or books. Yes, she reads, she reads poetry. Uh, and, and, and a fine uh, prose uh, stylist called uh, Akhtar Mahyuddin. But her relationship is organic. She's, 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 this is my place. Her house is uh, just a few feet away from this great uh, shrine. And she's grown up by this place. And inevitably, if she arranges a clandestine meeting with the, the man who she loves, she will want him to come to the shrine. 
But later on in the novel, it is revealed that she actually used to see him there when he was a little boy. So uh, she feels it was completely fatalistic that they were going to end up together. Yeah, she's, she's, yeah but she's, she's also, she's, she knows about, she has her moments of doubt, but she tells herself, that's okay, I can, I can do this. Uh, I, I would like you to read from the book now, I if you wouldn't mind. Uh, because I mentioned Ruhi and, and the river and the shrine, I will read a, a bit uh, towards the beginning of the novel where Ruhi, it's her habit to be by this window and look at her world, you know. Um, and she also sometimes, she lets her hair fall long at the window. She often does. I'm going to read that part, and, but it's, it's less about Ruhi but more about the river. Uh, this chapter is called The Window. Ruhi lets her hair fall long at the window and closes her eyes as the breeze from the river comes through the gaps in the glass. This is another thing of which mummy and her neighbors disapprove. Why doesn't she cover her head? Why must she comb her hair by the window? We say this because if she carries on, she is bound to attract the evil eye at some point. Why must she show herself at every stranger walking by? She shouldn't do it, and you should do something about it. I have told her so many times, but children these days, you know, how headstrong they are. My father would have dragged me down by my hair if I had dared to do so, even slapped me a few times. But you see, you can't hit a grown-up daughter, can you? At least I can't. She's my only daughter, after all. It's early evening. Ruhi is content to have warded off yet another marriage proposal, the sixth in all since her college and university life ended, brought by the younger aunt. The Jalem is racing down by the guard, its journey marked by swallows in pursuit. They will run along to the next bridge or the one after it, then disappear for the night. Many have their tiny nests inside the vast labyrinthine woodwork that supports the old bridges. Lights are borne along the two banks. Hundreds of tasseled, stained glass and embroidered windows pouring charms and warm shadows of Srinagar's oldest residence into the water. Men of houseboats, intimate friends of the river and the city's forgotten heroes sit on their jetties while the women, far more heroic, some believe, than the men, as they keep order inside the boathouse and defend their patch on the river, pump life into their kerosene stoves. Down on the Zainakadal Bridge, hawkers, keen to go home without any of their wares, wares shout out their last-minute sales pitches before curfew time. Fatigued fishermen are pulling their boats upstream to get to their homes on time, or are resting by the steps of the guard, their oars wedged between the rock faces of the bank like outstretched arms. This river made the city. And the city has tried to unmake it over the centuries. While it brings the heavenly waters of the Emerald Verinag Spring from the hem of the Peer Panjal Mountains, the city thoughts its dreams, pouring refuse, bad wishes, and dark stories into it. Of late, it has also started carrying the dead, many tales of cruelty, drowning in its onward rush, and with them the dark deeds of the oppressor too. It has moved mountains, yes. It has bestowed life on the enslaved tiller through the ages, yes. 
and it has brought romance to this old city too. But the city has proved to be an unfaithful lover. This city's rulers, its little tyrants, have tried to blacken its face, suppress its soul, and poured rock into its heart, and yet, even after so many insults to its pride, the river lives on. The city tamed the river. Gone are the days when it would put the fear of the deluge into the hearts of the townsfolk. People say it will take whatever you throw into it. But people are wrong. The river can break barriers of lead when it's angry. This river, it witnessing, this river is witnessing the decay of the city. There never was a more fitting revenge. It is just that people are blind. While you're busy burying your filth in it, while little tyrants plunder the mystic arcs of its bridges, while the occupier lays siege to it, the river has tender things to attend to. It has a love story to write. Thank you. Let's talk about the oppressor who, um, who emerges in the form of um, the Indian major, Sumit Kumar. Um, the, the, in the structure of the book, the way in which it's structured, the different characters are given their... Uh, you give each of the characters their perspectives in various chapters, and they're all from Kashmir, except this one outsider, except the, the, the major who takes over a school and turns it into a barracks for, for his soldier... Can, can you just say a little bit about the, the there's, a, there's a seminal exchange between the major and the headmistress of the school. She's lost her school. Her father has also been killed. And the, the, the exchange between them explores an area that I think is, is, goes through this book the whole time, that you, even those who are not willing to go off and fight, even those people who are you know, against what's happened, the bottom line for them is that they're against the occupation of, of, of their city, of their, their land. They don't like the Indian army being there. And, and that, in a way, is, is epitomised in that exchange because he's, he's clearly attracted to this headmistress in some, in some pretty visceral way and she cannot believe that he doesn't understand what he has done and the, the thing that he exemplifies... It, it, that could have felt... I mean, when I, I read that bit twice, because I thought, wow, you could have made... It could have come across as being really didactic, you know, kind of hitting people over the head with, this is what occupation looks like. <coughs> but it wasn't, and it was partly because each of those characters had their own had their own way of looking at the world, and you reveal that so beautifully. How did you make even the Indian major, who is the oppressor <coughs> in this situation... Somebody who was completely real, who had feelings, who had ambivalence about what he was doing. Um, because he's a nice boy. He grew up in De- he grows up in Delhi, and he comes from a uh, a middle class family where, where 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 children are taught to pursue careers and have become an officer, you know, whether of the Indian Army or or have or in the corporate sector. So a nice family Delhi boy who goes to and who's who's a careerist who wants to do well and he wants to impress his dad and he misses his mother, you know. But he's posted in this completely uh, brutal the- theater of war uh, and he 
he can't make sense of it in fully he knows his job his job is to you know crush this rebellion in his part of the town and when he moves into the city he's told that you will live in this school you know and then he essentially occupies this girls school in the heart of the city inch by inch classroom by classroom lab by lab but he doesn't really realize that he is doing something horrible not because he's evil and he's not evil because he thinks this is his job and surely this person the principal of the school should understand you know i have a job to do i have to sort of have have accommodation for my soldiers and for my myself and he's unhappy at the kind of accommodation he gets because he lives in a storeroom he sleeps in a dark storeroom which used to be the storeroom of the lab of the chemistry lab and he sees binocular microscopes there and 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 all those things in that lab and and he sleeps on a rough bed so those are his concerns that why is she not empathizing with me here i am in this dark hole you know i because he comes from a you know nice well to do family and he's been to boarding school and so on and so forth so he's not an evil man he his madness so to speak arrives incrementally slowly and gradually and in exchange you mentioned and i'm glad you sort of uh, picked that he is trying to be patient with this woman so there's a principal of this girl school who i loved writing because she's amazing and she was there was a woman called shanta call in my childhood when i was 8 and 9 and 10 she used to wear all i remembered remember of her she would wear wonderful sarees that's all i remember and and i remember her name shanta that's all i remember because that was about 26 years ago and later on when i'm writing the novel i have this principal figure in the novel whose whose life's work is this girl's school she lives by this work she loves it she is uh she's much more than an educationist so uh, you know she's she's in love with those girls she she sees a batch of girls pass out to the school every year and she's this is her life's work um so i yeah i gave her the stories i used i remember from my childhood and so she's trying to make she's trying to understand this person this major who's who's the, who's in charge of this school which is now a military camp in the heart of the city it's a barracks now and he can't understand her anger she's trying to tell him that i need the school back because i have exams to deal with her 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 concerns are quite practical and you know and and banal to an extent in the sense that she is not worried about the larger politics and and what goes on in the world of politics or geopolitics and oppression and occupation and so on and so forth she is like look dude this is my school i'm the principal <laughs> here what are you doing here and why aren't you leaving and that's what she wants to tell him in that exchange gradually and slowly because she has a she she does have a soft corner for him she 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 feels sad about this person she at one point she tells herself what have they done to this boy you know because he doesn't realize that he is uh, the he's the enforcer that he is actually occupied the school and he doesn't even see anything wrong with the idea of soldiers um waiting by the girls bathroom with their big guns he thinks it's all all right this is part of the job um so i i had to sort of i had this exchange that she has to talk to him and he has to talk to her 
uh, and he likes her because he she reminds him of his mother you know who also likes to kind of wear nice saris and so on and so forth and she he thinks of he he looks at shanta call and thinks of his mum he listens to her and he thinks of his mum and yet in this moment of madness and anger he says to himself i could have her arrested right away how dare she talk to me like this so there is there are conflicts within his 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 mind he's he's i mean he he's the kind of person who's um i wouldn't say he's the kind of figure that will appear in 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 hana arends banality of evil uh, you know but he he approaches that kind of a figure with the, the the rupture that you speak of that that took place in the early 90s which results in in the fictional character faz going across to to pakistan and train with the militants how how much of that did you do you just know because you've worked as a journalist i mean the the detail of him being trained the detail of the relationships that he forms in pakistan how much of that did you have to research and how much did you just know because you no kashmir and you're a journalist as well as a novelist no i didn't do any research i just made it up completely i never been to a training camp no i never been to a training camp in pakistan honestly i <laughs> <laughs> i haven't um, okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> a lot of people have and because back in the day a lot of us when i say us i don't mean sort of i am not speaking for kashmiri people but i mean talking about boys who grew up in the city would go across to become militants it wasn't some alien figure or some figure you couldn't know or you didn't understand or you didn't identify with it was the neighbor's son it was the boy you played cricket with it was the fast bowler you who used to dread on 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 the cricket field he would suddenly you hear that oh that fast bowler is gone you were relieved a little bit because he was very quick <laughs> <laughs> no, no. that he had gone to become a militant so on and so forth but i know been the inside and i've talked to people back in the day what it is like and everything but i didn't want to do a researched uh, set piece i wanted to imagine what it was like and i read uh, i asked um, a friend and former bbc colleague um harun rashid for a book which was not about militant camps any of things it was about geography you know i read some of it you know and the rest of it i imagined and i thought oh, this is what he's going to do there in the training camp and he finds books in the training camp and he finds pomegranates uh, does he find pomegranates he finds something mulberries maybe not no, he finds something yeah. pretty um and that, that's what's interesting about his his relationship um to the land because because he's an artist he sees beauty and love in everything even when he's at the training camp yeah 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 he 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 what he does even at the training camp when he's learning he finds himself in a bomb making workshop uh because he's assigned you know they give various tasks to various boys somebody has to you know learn how to throw a grenade somebody has to do rocket launches someone has to learn how to assemble uh, a kalashnikov this boy is given uh, the task of being an apprentice bomb maker so there is this uh, master bomb maker who i loved call, calling pintu <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so he is in pintu's workshop pintu listens to old film songs and makes bombs you know um and faz is asked to 
learn this craft and he will eventually inevitably do it with the same care and and and, and dedication as as uh, his art in with attention to detail he takes a while to learn he's he's obviously he's scared of this he, there is a moment in when he sees these things around him he's filled with a dread with, with a very uh, he's scared that oh my god are these bombs am i going to do them but eventually he does them because he has this is what he's come for while doing these things and while taking his walks uh, in in the in the, in the training camp he's also constantly thinking of his uh, big painting because he hasn't been able to work on it so he makes mental notes that i'm going to do this i'm going to add this part to this and he actually does some sketching on a on a you know on on some paper he finds in the camp which the which the in charge of the camp doesn't like says you're here to train as a militant this is not good uh, and he doesn't like the poet faiz ahmed faiz the in charge of the camp <laughs> you know because faiz reminds of the great uh, pakistani poet and he tells uh, faiz the our artist our protagonist that do you know what we did with him you know um we put him in jail because he wrote too much poetry and so faiz sort of picks all these things he 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 keeps them in you know and because he wants to as i said he's a bit deluded he thinks he'll go back even though he's a trained militant and armed fighter he will go back and somehow also work on his masterpiece you know and also be with the woman he loves yeah he spends a lot of time thinking about her so will you will you do another reading for us that, that this is a letter that she wrote to him one of the letters that she's written to him when he's training because it's a love story that have to be love letters and these love letters are uh, yeah they are they are smuggled uh, to the two parts of kashmir via uh, nepal um concealed in paper mache articles that are sent uh, for uh, you know repairs or or uh, for fresh painting and a uh, man uh, in nepal uh, receives letters from pakistan conceals them inside paper mache articles sends them to indian uh, controlled kashmir and then he receives letters from indian controlled kashmir through these paper mache articles concealed under the velvet of a coaster set or a jewelry box or you know what you have and then he sends them to pakistani controlled kashmir you know although these two places in the real world and in the novel are separated by a few feet at some points you know but the letters take about 2 weeks to go because they have to go to another country um this is one of the letters uh thank you very much uh no 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 he's a friend You want me to read the whole letter? That's too long. Uh, well, why don't you read from the beginning, from the beginning. Down, to, down to here? Okay. Uh, this is a letter that Ruhi has written to Faiz, and it re- uh, uh, reaches Faiz via the circuitous, uh, you know, uh, method. Faiz, my winter has been harsh too. It snowed and snowed so much so that broken electrical cables felt like dead birds across the city. The electricity still disappears for days and we live by kerosene stoves, lamps and candles. It is very dark here now. I didn't tell you in my last letter that the snow had one good effect at least. 
There were fewer gun battles and explosions in the days we were snowed in. Even the daredevils were stalled for a few days by the freeze, and the soldiers shivered in their pickets. You know, many of them have never seen snow before, let alone lived through a long snowy winter. I feel sorry for them. They shouldn't be here. But it's picked up. People are dying again. People are being killed like flies. I mean, there are actual people killed on the streets every day. I don't know if you heard, but they read out the toll on the evening news as if they were telling, as if they were talking about the amount of rainfall during the day. I feel frightened. As I offer namaz on Thursdays, I often hear sobs behind me. I dread turning around. The shrine itself feels like a melancholy place. Do you remember Maharaja? Who recorded those voices? He has disappeared or gone into hiding. There are rumors he may be in some jail or dead, or in the Paradise Hotel. You know what that is, don't you? Now that he's gone, I miss his nighttime screaming, even his swearing. I sometimes feel scared for Rumi, who refused to stay indoors. But then I tell myself, actually, it's nothing compared to where you are. How will I cope? What will I do when you come back? Papa hardly goes out unless he has to. Even then, he comes back quickly. His darbars at the shops have ended, and he's lonely. Actually, he's been feeling more and more scared since Principal calls murder. The only good thing I can tell you is that Mummy has changed. She is no longer burdened by thoughts of my wedding. If you ask me what my heart's truest desire is, I would say I want you to come back. But then I cannot be sure when I think about it that it would be a wise thing to do. Then I think you have to come back some day. So why not now? After all, you did go there to come back, didn't you? Then I think about what will happen when you do, and I don't know. It's a strange thing within me, and it's painful. Sometimes I wish I could talk to you on the telephone, you know, discuss it, and listen to you. You haven't changed, Faisal, have you? I wonder if you think about me at all. You must have bigger things on your mind now, and new friends. When I think of that, I decide I do not want to get in the way. After all, you didn't ask me when you decided to do this. But I do not blame you. If you ask me my heart's desire, I would tell you I want you to come back now. I would tell you I want to join in your fight. My blood boils too, you know. Some days I imagine myself blowing up near some some sorry. Some days I imagine blowing myself up near a bunker or one of those monster trucks. But then I think I would it would be no use in the end. There are so many of them here. Maybe I'm more useful alive. I would be very sad if I died without seeing you. The city is a lightless prison now. No one can stir without the permission of the soldiers. I sometimes imagine we are in a vast coop, with thousands of them circling around it, and they hit out at my hand if I try to get some air. I can feel it actually—the dumb, the choking inside me. But that's not all. Crammed together in this cage, some somehow started lashing out at the others. We jostle for breathing space and push at those around us. There is suspicion and, of course, death. While the soldiers kill every day, the boys have started killing some of our own. Some of the boys are particularly hard on the girls, and I don't understand why. 
you of course are not like that a few of them the boys she means a few of them have actually killed for sport to make the next day's headlines thank you